Welcome to the Outthinkers Podcast. Plug into fascinating minds and breakthrough ideas that are transforming industries and the world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of Outthinker Networks, a global think tank comprised of corporate strategists, innovators, and entrepreneurs that are shaping the future of business. If this describes you, join us at outthinker.com. Now, let's dive into this week's episode. But I think the myth for most people is that risk takers don't have fear. I'm like, no, no, they're mastering that equation. Most people think they're mastering that equation by just visualizing the positive. If you look at the world's, I'd say, more sophisticated risk takers, you know, they visualize to a certain extent to get excited about the next possibility, and then they turn themselves into pre-morteming failure. For most people, if you can imagine you make the choice and the choice fails and generate all the ideas of what you would do after, then you can really, you know, figure out what you would do in all those failure states. And it helps you size the risk appropriately. And in most cases, it helps people shrink their fear of failure. That was Sukinder Singh Cassidy, leader of the growth and performance of Zero globally. With more than 25 years of experience in Silicon Valley as a CEO, digital leader, and board member, she has experience building and scaling global companies, including within Google, Amazon, Yodly, Joyous, and StubHub. Working across such a diverse, prominent portfolio of companies has given Sukinder a unique counter-perspective on how leaders and business owners look at risk and reward. Her book, Choose Possibility, Take Risks and Thrive Even When You Fail, sheds light and dives deep into what she's learned in her extensive career as a leader in tech, where risk-taking and volatility is the norm. In this discussion, we journey through the art of risk-taking and decision-making with its intricate interplay of creating a portfolio of bets, understanding variability, and fostering an environment that embraces ambiguity and iteration, something that we particularly need in today's day and age. Sikinder shares with us the interrelation between possibility and decision-making and how it's too often wrapped up in the myth of the single choice, as she calls it. How taking a big risk often starts with building and evaluating a portfolio of small possibilities and how you build this. How as a leader, you shouldn't force people to give you false precision, which often results in failures, plus three more mistakes leaders make that inhibit risk-taking and the exploring of possibilities. How the best risk-takers aren't successful from an absence of fear, but rather by learning to master what Sukinder calls the universal risk equation. Ladies and gentlemen, Sukinder Singh Cassidy. Sukinder, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's great to be with you. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. We have so much that I want to talk about from your role as an entrepreneur and that startup and contrasting that to you being an entrepreneur, you being a CEO, you being on the board, you've done everything from licking stamps to just advising people to lick stamps, right? And all the range in between. But I do want to start with two questions that I start my podcast with always. The first is just for us to get to know you a little bit better personally. Could you complete this sentence for me? If you really know me, you know that. If you really know me, you know that I love to bake, knit, and play tennis, and you can get me to cry at a moment's notice by saying something. Wow. Bake, knit, and what was the third one? Play tennis. Play tennis. 
Awesome. I'm looking for a commonality between them, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> there is, but, uh, but in, uh, yeah. Yeah. as you say, like you know, with regard to career, after the fact, you can thread the logic through, but that's yeah. not what gave it's it not, to you. Yeah, I don't, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and what is your definition of strategy? My definition of strategy is like a living, working, rough plan of where you want to head that evolves go. And tell us more about why you say rough plan. <laughs> because life never goes as you want it to. And so, you know, as you know, and many people on this podcast know, you can write a perfect piece of strategy on paper, but it sort of presumes the world is constant and conditions are constant, but that's just never true. And so it looks wonderful and you have a destination and it's only as you start going that, you know, you get tailwinds or headwinds. Somebody gets off the bus, somebody gets on the bus. What looked easy from afar is hard from within. And so get there by sort of, you know, roughly thinking about where you want to go. And then you just keep adjusting. And by the way, you may get all the way there. You may not, but you know, I'm never one to not have a purpose at the end, but I guess I've been smacked around enough in life <laughs> <laughs> to know that it's just never like that. So like at, taking it as scream, you could say, Hey, if, if it's messy, how are we going to get there? Let me set the goal and let me just hope, or let me just plan. But you break down some really practical things that we can do as decision makers to be in action despite the messiness. If, if you don't mind me maybe opening up with, it took me some reading of your books, some listening to podcasts to really appreciate why you named the book what you named the book. And so could you tell us why Choose Possibility? Sure. Well, I, uh, I named the book Choose Possibility on the thesis that we're always aiming ourselves towards the next possibility and winning comes by choosing through successes and failures. And so the way I think about the world, it's very simple. You know, you have a big goal, whatever it is, but it, like, let's just talk professionally. You have a big goal for yourself or, you know, a business and you set it. Okay. You decide you're going to, you know, take this. You're not done when you set it, right? Then all the work begins. And so then you are just picking your way through smaller choices, make a choice, see the results. You know, you either get learning, you get the results you want or learning, and then you choose again. And the answer turns out is you just keep choosing through a bunch of obstacles. And if you look even more deeply at the hero's journey, which, you know, is oft referred to, people always remember the singular what looks like big risk to big return. It's never really like that. Even in detail, the hero's journey is about a number of obstacles, you know, that a protagonist goes through on the way to, you know, the top of the mountain. So I picked a choose possibility because you're always orienting yourself play through the current possibility, choose the next possibility. But if you're open to the next possibility, then you know it's not a single choice game. So what is the risk of the myth? So I'm kind of imagining an entrepreneur working in a company, Andy Jassy at Amazon, right? Before he became, you know, as well known to outs people outside of the tech world as you, as, you know, you know, he sees this opportunity. I think his target says, hey, can you run our platforms? And he kind of sees this thing, right? After the fact, the myth is he saw and he said, we'll do this. And then, aha, it happened. And what is, I understand what's wrong about the myth because it's not, I can see that. But what's the problem with that myth? Sure. The problem with that myth is it's sort of like you're waiting for the singular big aha, right? And if it doesn't come, uh, if you don't get it, you don't act. And people wait to act for the single like light bulb idea. And as you know, often, 
often you take a little risk. Andy Jassy takes that call. He listens, maybe sets up a small team to be like, okay, Target, we'll try this. And on the basis of a little data, he gets a little bit more conviction, right? So people always assume somebody made a massive choice and took a massive risk. And often people are choosing a possibility. Maybe it's a small possibility. They get themselves into action. They see the results, right? And they keep choosing their way. And I bet you at some point, Andy Jassy did have to make, truly take a big risk. You know, somewhere in there, he went to Jeff Bezos, and I'm sorry, I don't know the story of AWS. I should, but I don't. And said, Jeff, you know, I want $2 billion, right? By the time he did that, I can guarantee he had a bunch of data points. He built conviction. He had iterated his way through a bunch of choices before he made that ask. Oh, and by the way, you know, even in the context of Amazon, no offense, $2 billion, what might be a big risk somewhere else is probably medium-sized risk for Amazon. Because Bezos would be the first to say, okay, we'll try it. And if we fail, like, we'll dial back and, you know, we'll shut down, you know, we'll shut down and move on. So even our assessment actually of a big risk is often that it's not as big as we think if you can retrofit out of it if it fails. But I think the biggest point is it likely isn't that Andy Jassy rolled in his bed one night and said, oh my God, you know, it's likely that he had an inkling of an idea or it was bought to him by a customer or employee or something. And he started, you know, playing through that idea and getting data points, right? Uh, so most of that's, I, I think what's wrong with the myth of the single choice, which is what I call it in the book, is many people wait to act until they have a big idea. I'm like, okay, like, <laughs> let me just hold on. I, you know, when I left Google, many people would call me and be like, I want to be an entrepreneur. You know, so Kendra, I'm at Google, I want to be an entrepreneur. I'm like, okay, a couple things here. Leaving Google is a big choice. You're leaving a lot of money on the table, right? Being an entrepreneur is really hard. So before you make the big choice, why don't you play through a bunch of small choices? And then there will be a day where you have to decide. But that day is not today. <laughs> like, if you want to be an entrepreneur, we'll start advising startups. If you want to be an entrepreneur, start a side hustle. If you're not willing to spend five hours at night doing it, I'm not sure what makes you think you should go do your day job. If you want to be an entrepreneur, go talk to 10 startups and compare them to each other. Like, so, but people are waiting for some miraculous big choice or light bulb moment. And I'm mostly like, hey, why don't you start choosing your way through multiple possibilities? take little smart risks. And then one day you might need to take a big risk. And maybe that's a one-way door. Even then, it, you know, which is an Amazon phrase, one-way door is two-way doors. Like, can you go through and come back if it doesn't work? So. Yes. Yeah. And there's research that shows that one of the big barriers for entrepreneurship, and I'm sure it's for entrepreneurs as well, is that we focus on too few ideas. Mm -hmm. And when you have just one idea, there was a French philosopher who said, there's nothing more dangerous than an idea when it's the only one you have. Uh, and then you just want to keep driving that idea. Even if the, you're getting feedback, it's a bad idea. So what advice do you have for someone who maybe recognizes that they're falling into that? How, how does one generate hmm. enough ideas? Well, first of all, you kind of hit the key point. I would say you need a pipeline, right? So it's sort of like, you know, I'm like, so you have to build a pipeline because it's a game of probabilities, right? And probabilities with increasing data points. That applies to a job search. That applies to an idea you think is great. Because if you only have one, you're attached to it, right? It's like, as I said, if you apply the same logic to your, you know, to your career or to work, if you go through and you're only advocating for one idea and the data points, it's a bad idea, but it's the only idea you have. You're singularly attached to it. You have nothing to compare it to. So I think this idea of probabilities is pretty important. Now, by the way, juggling 10 ideas, also hard if you have limited resources. But, you know, this is why you want to brainstorm. Maybe you get down to two or three. And then just be open to getting an action on two or three and getting data points, right? And then building your conviction. So again, by the time you take a bigger risk, it's a calculated risk. By the way, it might still fail. It's okay. But 
you're a smart risk taker. I hope the book teaches people to be smart risk takers in favor of opportunity. But mostly, I think the worst kind of risk to take is one risk. And let's just see what happens. I, 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 like, and if it fails, well, I'm never taking risk again. I'm like, oh, gosh. How about the world of probabilities? Right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, there's five questions that come out of that. Uh, but let me start with one is, you just touched on a little bit. How, how do you know if you have too few or too many? How would you think about knowing? Yeah. Well, look, first of all, again, even the process of idea generation, like if you're inside a company, right? The process of idea generation, get a bunch of smart people in the room who have different perspectives, but experience inside the company. By the way, you know, in a place like Zero, lots of ideas might come out of customer support because every day there are customer problems, right? So make sure you get the right, uh, right, I'd say smaller set of people in the room who have diverse perspectives, but maybe experience, right? And I bet you nine out of 10 of the ideas that we generate anyway will be generated from insights about customers or what's already working in the business. So first of all, there's this myth you need to come up with something totally new. Often there's insights in your own business, as you know, about green shoot opportunities, right? So if you get the right people around the table, you know, I would say, by the way, I don't spend my time brainstorming, spend my time. But, you know, maybe brainstorm 10 ideas. Like, look, this is now gut, you know, as a leader, you know, that you have money to test all 10. You probably need to, you know, brainstorm 10, create criteria. Your criteria might be, you know, what evidence do we have already that this is working even before we put, you know, dollar of effort into it. Great the ideas. And again, I'm a big fan of, you know, I always think of risks in this, like corporate risk and strategy risk in this three buckets. It's very simple. Low hanging fruit type risk, high probability of rewards. They might be small, but you have enough data to know like, hey, if I just put, I don't know, a million dollars more into marketing in this channel or region, I have pretty good evidence that I'm going to get yield. Then there's sort of like risks that are like fundamentals, you know, like medium probability, you know, medium size returns. And then you have sort of like, I don't know, some people call it your 10% risks, your flyers. I call it like obtain glory, like ideas that you have no idea if they'll work, but if they worked, man, right? So I think about like brainstorming, like all of them. It's sort of like, again, the simplest way for me to describe it is college applications with your kid. You go all the way from stretch schools down to like safety schools. Like maybe you decide you're going to test three, one in each bucket. Again, I think it matters less how perfect you are. This is like get to 10, get to three, figure out how many you can afford to fund in some way, you know, create a time you're going to come back together and look at the results and then go. So, and and you can have a thesis at one of those three is the biggest yield. And you might be right. The point is just like, go get some data. So I don't know that is like you know, but I, again, I think in, you know, I guess I think in portfolios. Of yeah, but that's really interesting. Yeah. Portfolios. And then, you know, as you, you've wrote written about as well, we have portfolio managers, they make lots and lots of trades and, you know, as you diversify, yeah. One of my favorite Bezos quotes is if you have a one in 10 chance of a hundred times payoff, you got to take that bet every time, but you got to be ready to lose nine times out of 10. Right. Yeah. And then you have others that are five and 10 bets or eight and 10 bets. And that's okay. By the way, that's the bread and bread and butter of like, you know, how you might build yield, right? They're all not one in 10 bets. That's what I mean about this kind of big choice or no choice. I'm like, no, no, there's a portfolio of choices. Right, right. Yeah, and we do see entrepreneurs and strategists, if they're working inside a large established company, they lean really heavily to those first two buckets uh, and don't want to spend a lot of time investing in or talking about those that other one. You write also about in, you know in order to in order to have a full portfolio, you need to generate a lot of ideas. And what are some you know you talk for example about having a tribe around you? What what do you suggest someone do that maybe recognizes that they need more ideas? 
they don't just sit in a bathtub, right? What do they do? <laughs> well, again, if you're talking corporate strategy specifically, remember we talked about bringing that smart and diverse group into a room. You have to like, you want a diaspora of types, right? Like I always say, like you might want in the room the naysayer and the pessimist. You might want in the room people who are particularly creative. That's okay at a certain stage, right? You want to pull, I'd say, different archetypes of people to give you different lenses in both generating ideas and maybe even rating the downsides of those ideas. But I think that you sort of have to just first create an environment in which you can pull some of the more diverse sets, types of thinkers in the company, again, diverse functionally and maybe diverse by personality type. Like, you know, somebody like me lives in possibility. My issue is the opposite, right? My issue is like, I dream up 10 ideas, but like we're constrained, (laughs) you know, so. Constraint is hard for me. There are other people who can see very clearly what to do inside a constrained environment. But if it's a piece of paper, they're just like a little lost until you give them thought starters and, you know, and other things. So I think it's about the diversity of the group, the diversity of their tenure and the diversity of their, I'd say, thinking styles. Definitely in a brainstorming session, you need some, you know, very creative, you know, I'd say thinkers who are willing to, you know, put that into the mix. Yes. And you as a leader need to create the space for yeah, that to happen. Yes. Yeah, you need to, but there's one important thing. I think more than creating space, what I always say to leaders at companies is if you want to create a risk-taking environment, small risk, big, medium-based risk, big, whatever that is, you have to understand that you have to let people, not expect people to give you false precision. So like, this is one of the things that drives me crazy. People brainstorm and then they come out and like, oh, we need to set a plan that's exactly how much we're going to generate from these ideas. I'm like, this is false precision. Nobody knows. So you can say like, hey, CEO, I want to take 5% of our resources in three ideas. And this one is low probability. This is medium. This is like, could be a complete whiff, whatever it is. And say like, so I can give you a range of what I think will happen. But until I get into action, I don't know. So companies also need to expect, depending on the nature of the bet, allowing people to give them a range and volatility. I feel like so many leaders ask for preciseness. And I'm like, and I'm like, come on, guys. Like, you can spend all your time trying to create a perfect forecast. The reality is nobody knows. Nobody. By the way, even on the businesses that run really well, there's still a range of volatility because of all those things we talk about. So I think as leaders, you, you want to create an environment. You can't just go ask people to brainstorm. You also have to take latitude, whether it's in how much capital for how much return, showing you a range of return profiles, showing you a hypothesis and saying like, this is what I think, this is what I'm going to measure, but I don't know. So this talks, this is very much about the capital envelope, right? The financial envelope when it comes to certain size risks, you know, like let's say inc- even incubation risk, right? It's like, you just have to think about it that way. Yeah. You've given us three or four very specific things that a leader can do to allow for those ideas that can't yet be proven, avoiding that prove, plan, execute approach versus the act, learn, build approach. But I just want to clarify, you're not talking about, follow that rule, you're talking about taking actions that aren't you say get information, but sometimes the information is not there, right? It's not look up a report. It's not write a business case. You're talking about yeah, I'm talking about, about getting to execution mode and get, it's like an MVP, right? It's like get the most minimal data points you can to sort of keep validating, right? And then it, so again, this podcast makes it sound like all the risk taking I'm advocating is iterative. That's like, I think that once you've made, you know, a big choice or a small strategy choice, you're iterating your way through anyway. Sometimes that iteration precedes, right? It precedes the big choice, to your point. Sometimes you can only get certain data points and then you, you're forced to make a bigger call, right? And then in any event, you're executing all the way through that, right? And you want to be iteratively kind of 
executing on that big risk, even if you made the call before you had a lot of data points. But the overall point is it's iterating through small and big risk. Perfect. And you write something that I, I hadn't thought of before. I'm, I'm sure other people have, or you, this for you is just, you know, obvious to you. But for me, it was a big insight. You know, I know like taking lots of risk, we can diversify, reduce our risks. We can create a more predictable return by putting multiple bets in one thing. But you also talk about like the psychological impact of taking these small bets, making these small steps. Could you just describe that to us? Sure. So, I always say, if you think the relationship between risk and reward is the bigger the risk, the bigger the reward, I'm not sure I agree. <laughs> what I mostly say is the reward for risk is not what you think it is. So we make a big choice. Again, strategy choice, career choice, right? And then we move. We start taking action and we iterate our way, execute our way, right? Little little choices, little actions, get the learning, succeed, and keep building upon them. And one day, three or five years later, we're either going to have the outcome we wanted or we won't. Okay. But in the process of iterating through things that they work and don't work, you build two skills that are actually long-term predictors of success. One is agility, one is resilience. And the result of agility and resilience is confidence, right? And it's not confidence that you're always going to get the result you predicted, but it's confidence that you believe you have agency to keep moving your way through success and failure, right? And then one day you'll look back and you'll either say, I achieved that thing or I didn't achieve that thing. But I bet you, you will be a more agilient, resilient, and confident leader. Guess what the number one skills are that are predictors of long-term success? Not singular success, long-term success. <laughs> you know, go read, you know, articles like I think the New York Times put out one on like the path to the CEO seat is a winding one. It's people, iterative risks, sometimes laterally, right, in ways you don't expect. And that's how they got to this. It wasn't linear. And so that's sort of the point. But what they've done through that non-linear journey is built agility, resilience, and a result of having those two things, confidence, right? Confidence that we can deal with obstacles and failure. Yes, and I just want to not have a question here, but I just want to accentuate how important what you just said is. If you do that for yourself, amazing, transformative. If you then do it for 100 people, 10,000 people, and you can systemically build that confidence and willingness to, what will that do to the, you know, amplify the, because yeah, fascinating. What, what is the universal risk equation? <laughs> sounds like it applies. Um, and by the way, just all the way back, not today, but certainly I would say historically, uh, Google was, you know, this is their whole 70, 20, 10 portfolio of risk-taking training, risk-taking, you know, and then many, like, like literally being clear to the company about the bet portfolios, right? The return and capital now. Anyway, the universal yeah. risk equation I think you asked about is there is, uh, an equation on, uh, that I call kind of fear of failure and FOMO. These are things you both know well. If you have take one, take a risk, you have a fear of failure on the one end, you have FOMO on the other. And, and if your FOMO, your fear of missing out on something, you know, is greater than your fear of failure, likelihood is you'll act. Okay? Any risk. If your fear of failure exceeds your FOMO, likely is you won't, likely as not, you won't act. So it's, you know, FOMO greater than fear of failure equals action, you know, and if the reverse is true, equals inaction. But I think the myth for most people, is that risk takers don't have fear. I'm like, no, no, they are mastering that equation. Most people think they're mastering that equation by just visualizing the positive. If you look at the world's, I'd say, more sophisticated risk takers, you know, they visualize to a certain extent to get excited about the next possibility, and then they turn themselves into pre-morteming failure. Uh, this could be anyone from, in my book, I write about Alan Eustace who is an ex-Googler who became in the world record holder for, you know, the longest free fall from space. 
And if you you Alan, who's an engineer, he'll tell you about all of the testing he did for five years in a suit and, you know, going up to the edge of the you know, stratosphere. And so by the time he took the jump, the actual jump, which he didn't set the world record on, he's like, I'd already pre-mortemed every, every use case, right? So he got into action because he hadn't like spent all his time visualizing the positive. He spent the, you know, after imagining it, he spent most of the time pre-morteming the failure state, which in his case is a massive risk. It's like the risk of death, right? But for most people, if you can imagine you make the choice and the choice fails and generate all the ideas of what you would do after, like, let's say you quit your job and go be a startup entrepreneur and it fails. If you can pre-mortem right now, what would happen after? Can you go back to a big company? Okay. Can you, you know, start playing it all out. Do you have a spouse who has an income? Like, okay. Then you can really figure out what you would do in all those failure states. And it helps you size the risk appropriately. And in most cases, it helps people shrink their fear of failure to get low enough to act. Both because they realize, oh, the risk is not as bad as I thought, or they see how they can mitigate that risk and create that risk asymmetry. And and you point out as well that business development people, they do a lot of focusing on what could go wrong. It's like a key success factor, right? I'm like, you know, you're in love with each other on a deal until the time the contract comes. And then turn from a complete optimist to a complete pessimist. If you've ever been in a negotiation with a biz dev person, then they just negotiate the Jesus out of the contract to make sure that every failure state is imagined. <laughs> and then they come out the other end and you do a deal and you get into action. Yeah. Oh gosh. So, so much we can go in there. I know we're, I know we're reaching the top of our time with you. So I'm just going to ask you just one, one last question, what question. So you are leading what looks like an amazing, fascinating company, Zero, helping entrepreneurs around the globe and you are scaling rapidly. You've, you've been at a huge, huge company, Google. What can a company do or what were you going to do at Zero? What can a company do to maintain this kind of agility and experimentation as you get bigger? Right. Well, first and foremost, I want to come back to that con- comment I gave on Google and the way I talk about things at Zero. I'm like, look, guys, we have a portfolio of bets. You know, in our case, it's countries and products and segments. And I'm like, so, and there are different states of maturation, and that's okay. Our first job is to, to your point, look at it like a portfolio, you know, and because that portfolio is what you will, allows you to take low, medium, and high risks. So we talk a lot at Zero as we're, you know, as to investors and generally about like, okay, we have a portfolio of countries and products and segments, and we're going to have to place some bets. And some of these are really high probability and some of these are lower probability. We can't place every bet, right? So even like we're constrained in resources. So I think, first of all, just talking portfolio theory, you'd be surprised how much it helps people just size and quantify, right? The different bets one might take. Low risk, low return, low risk, high return, blah, blah, blah. And help them chart it. I think that's I think that's what number two as a leader, I keep coming back to it. And then I have a third one. Uh, you have to create conditions where people can tell you the variability of ranges on any given bet. It sounds so simple, but it's true. Nothing drives me more crazy when people come in with like a plan on paper and like they spend weeks trying to get the precise number for a forecast. I'm like, you don't know. You don't know. It's early. Just give me a range so we can plan for the range. <laughs> like you just give me I spent like half as much time plan for the range. Tell me the range. I will accept a range and then go get into action. Like, cause all of this perfecting of your plan on paper that takes weeks, if a leader expects a perfect plan from something with highly imperfect data, I think it's a, I think it's it's not creating conditions for for agility. And then I, I always say to my teams, 
it's this, it's the most simple one. Take little risks every day. I'm like, if you're sitting in a meeting and you know, you don't understand something, speak up. It's a little risk. You know, I call that ego risk. What's the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen is, you know, somebody maybe thinks it wasn't the best idea. The best that can happen is so much better. You ask a question that everyone's worrying about. It's a little risk, but it unlocks learning for the whole room. Like, like if people just took little risks every day, I think they would learn that there's not that much to fear. And then obviously in doing so, even in taking little risks, if you just took a little risk every day, you will build your agility, your resilience, and your confidence. Love it. Oh, love it. Yeah, this is so practical, so specific. And the ripple effect of each of those is, is profound. I see that. So people should certainly buy your book. Uh, you've got a great website associated with the book as well, choosepossibility.com. How else can people continue to learn from you and follow you? You can always follow me on LinkedIn. I wouldn't call myself the world's best influencer. I, I love running a company and working, you know, at zero. And but you know, when I post thoughts, I post them there. And mostly I hope that the book is pragmatic and helpful for people in like actionable steps to just unlock your own risk-taking muscle. Because the majority, as we talked about, is for upside. You know, unless you're in a life-threatening situation, most of the risks we contemplate taking every day are for possibility. Wow. Thank you, Sukinder. Smart, proven, and inspiring. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our executive producer, Karina Reyes, our editor, Zach Ness, and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you soon with another episode of Outthinkers. Thinkers.